I thought we would open this week by talking about probably the leading digital games platform in the world today, certainly for the last few years. And that, of course, is Steam. I've got a very soft spot for Steam. I think it was Steam that really introduced me personally to the wonders of independent video games. And I'd say today, it's still the gold standard, certainly in terms of digital game sales. Current figures show over 7,500 games available on Steam. And their other numbers are pretty crazy too. Over 125 million active users. And what a wonderful, devoted fan base to have. And I wondered, Mike and Federico, whether you had the same level of affection for Steam and what Steam means to you in 2016. Steam's a difficult one for me, right? Um, because I, yeah. I don't do a ton of PC gaming. Uh, but I do have Steam installed, and I have a, a modest catalogue of games. Currently, I'm playing American Truck Simulator uh, through Steam. And so I I, you know, I appreciate it for what it is um, and for what it provides me, which is a way to play video games on my Mac uh, because every other route there seems to be means that you either get the games slowly or late and or they don't perform so well. And it seems that the introduction of Steam on the Mac a couple of years ago really helped a lot of that. So I, you know, I feel good about having it, but I'm not as devoted to it as I am some of the other platforms that I own and use. Yeah, so my, my question really, I guess, was you both like, independent video games let's call them indie games mm -hmm. i know i try and avoid that term as much as possible because it seems to have lost so much meaning but let's say um games that i think just about everyone on the planet calls indies except me now where do you get your indie games from so it depends right a lot of the indie games that i want to play these days are ios games or they are on playstation like there's there's so much activity going on on those platforms that I feel like I don't really need Steam to get all of the games that I want to get. There are a couple that I have. So like um I I was playing Nuclear Throne a while ago and I got it on Steam before it came to PlayStation where I played it again. Um but I am mainly able to kind of hold off and wait to see if a game will come to another platform just because I prefer playing on some on my consoles than on my on my Mac, which is just my kind of preference for playing games. Do you have a a separation between work and play in that respect? And you think if you're on your Mac, you're going to be working, and if you're if you're on your console, you're relaxing. I just think really, it's like my Mac just isn't as good with video games as my consoles are like i have a top of the line imac and and it gets really upset about playing some games and there's lots of slowdown and stuff like that like i just don't have a machine that's really built for gaming in this you know in the same way that my consoles are i guess like it just doesn't feel as nice an experience to me 
Um, and I'm not personally interested in, in a PC um, to play a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah, I think PCs kind of have the image of being a little bit geekier for games as well. You know, that whole lean forward thing and, and people being prepared to experiment more with their setups. And you got this whole, I mean, you're talking about American Truck Simulator, another way of referring to a PC setup for gaming is a rig. And of course, mm-hmm. people take a lot of time and attention and care to set up their rig for gaming just permanently. It seems to be almost a different sort of activity to the much more lean back experience you get with console. Yeah, and that doesn't seem to have changed much, despite the massive success of Steam. Well, I just think it, maybe for the people that play games that way, it's not an issue. Like you know, they don't care, and there are enough PC gamers out there. And people that like to play on their PC, that it's not an issue for Steam and the platform can continue to grow. Because one of the things is, you know, you don't just need more people all the time. You just need more games as well. So, you know, their platform will continue to grow because they'll just have more games to sell to the existing user base. Federico, what does Steam mean to you? (laughs) I think I'm uh, I'm the least equipped to to talk about Steam today because I... I, I, I don't want to say it means nothing, but it's just I don't play games on PC or Mac. I I, th- I have a Steam account. I, I tried Steam. I think I own uh, two, maybe three games on Steam. I, I really don't use it. I'm familiar with Steam, and I know what its importance mean, uh, means to you know to developers and to players. I just... I just don't use it. I've been I've been a Steam observer in a sense, and in general, I guess um, I'm one of those people who are uh, afraid of um, getting into PC gaming, not because of the expense, but because of the required knowledge. You know, uh, not just that I've been a Mac user for you know almost a decade at this point. It's just uh, I don't know how to build a PC. I don't know what you know, like. Uh, graphic card requirements mean I I have no idea I I, I grew up uh, as a you know as a console guy uh, I never had to think about specs and th- that doesn't mean that I that I haven't been keeping an eye on on PC especially in the past year in fact uh, I've been considering buying one of those Oculus ready PCs where you don't have to think about the specs, they just give it to you and it's good enough to run an Oculus Rift uh, setup. So I've been considering that, but it's quite the expense, you know, and, and it would also mean that I buy a PC just for games. So it's basically like a very expensive console, which I don't know if <laughs> which I don't know if I wanna do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I really I, I like Steam. I like the idea. I like what it, what they do for the community. I like what they do for developers. I'm just not an expert. So this is the thing about Steam for me. Steam has been totally revolutionary in changing the way developers are able to reach the market. And 10 years ago, for example, I mean, what was a route to market for a developer? It was really, really difficult. I and mean, we talked about over 7,500 games available in Steam. I mean, that's a colossal amount I don't think there's another uh, console platform that compares with that. Obviously, iOS blows it out of the water, but that's a completely different kettle of fish altogether. Um, But the thing that really uh, brought to life the independent development scene 
and I'm and I'm not just talking about the smaller independent developers. I'm talking about much larger independent developers as well. Uh, the the likes of the guys who made The Witcher, for example, just completely opened up the market. And to start off with, there was quite a gold rush. I mean, Steam was the place to get your your game out if you're an independent developer. Um, you remember World of Goo, right? Yes. Yeah. And that was that was an utter phenomenon. That kind of paved the way. And uh, many other developers followed suit. And of course, what happened was as Steam became more and more popular with developers, we've had this really trendy word come up quite a lot recently. You must have heard it. Indiepocalypse. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It, it's, it's a nonsense term. So I, I want to trash this myth. Are, are, we, are we good to trash myths here? You can do whatever you want. Let's trash a myth. <laughs> this word has been bandied about, and um, I, I, I refuse to address it because it just seems like manufactured news. And I think what, the, what they're trying to say is, oh, the good old days of making a fortune on Steam are over. I remember speaking to a developer about three years ago about success on Steam, and he blithely mentioned that he knew, he knew off the top of his head 15 or 20-odd developers just in his circle who had made over half a million bucks on Steam. We're talking about solo devs. And many developers saying, oh, those good old days are over. Well, you know, this is what happens when, when you have an attractive market. Lots of people are drawn to that market. And then what happens is that market forces cause the quality required to go up. We've talked about this as regards iOS. You've got the commoditization of software. So really all we're talking about is... Standards have gone up. There are lots more games available on Steam. And really, people have just got to bring their best game. And if they're not bringing their best game, they're not going to sell as well. Because we've had this discussion about just how much stuff there is out there. And of course, if you're up against 7,500 other games as a developer, of course, you're going to get less attention. So you've got to work a lot, lots harder, which means what? You've got to work with more people. And so it takes a completely different sort of developer or a completely different sort of idea to achieve success. So actually, there's a lot more money there. I mean, you know, Steam's got a lot more customers. We're talking about an increase of, I think, 50 million customers in the last three or four years. That's a lot of new people. <laughs> um, and, and they're all spending money. It's not like people aren't making money on Steam. People are making a lot of money it's just there are a lot more brilliant developers out there. So, so hopefully that myth has been trashed. I mean, it's not like Steam haven't been working hard to support developers. They've introduced all kinds of innovations, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of these. I mean, there were some, certainly amongst some developers, there was some negativity around green light when it first appeared because a lot of developers saw that as gatekeeping. But actually gatekeeping is what a lot of the other console um, uh, platforms have been doing for quite some time. What did you think of Greenlight, and do you think it's worked? So Steam Greenlight is the ability for a developer to post uh, a kind of Kickstarter-like, right? You're able to put the game up in an early state, um, and people can say if they want it, and then can can get a very early version of the game, right? Am I following that correctly? Almost. It's it's a way of getting voted onto the store. 
so yeah you have got like an early version of the game or more more likely screenshots or videos and uh, other material about the game and and the idea is to try and get the community to vote your game onto steam so it acts as uh, as a sort of barrier hasn't stopped 7500 games getting onto steam but it certainly has um i guess reduced the flood that steam would experience that ios has been subject to there's no green light on ios of course yeah i think that green light is a good thing uh, mm. because it allows it allows some developers i guess to get a bit of validation for their idea before going ahead and putting you know even more and more time into it like if you put your game up on green light and it doesn't get through that probably tells you something about your game that maybe you didn't know before right like, which, which, you know and this is it's why you know many game developers use kickstarter and and that kind of thing but the green light system i think is as good it's a it's a nice marketing platform as you know in the same way that kickstarter is and then also allows a, a community to form around your specific game i think there's some potential problems maybe um the fact that uh, this maybe applies more to kickstarter than greenlight uh but there's a at least what i'm seeing is a bit of a crowdfunding fatigue in a lot of people yep. you know everyone is doing a kickstarter uh, not just for games but I, I i i see people on twitter um just being stressed in general by this uh you know everyone's doing a kickstarter and there's a couple of bad cases of you know kickstarters not going as planned so maybe that's a potential problem and the other is maybe the fact that when you're trying to promote a game that is not finished uh it's more of a chicken and egg scenario uh, maybe you you cannot build a fan base because the game is not finished but the game can be finished because there's no way to show the idea to people you know mm-hmm. so i guess developers should i mean it's not for everyone right uh to do a green light or a kickstarter that sort of thing uh and and I see every in discussions with uh, with some friends, just you know, developers saying, "Well, let's just do a Kickstarter or let's just show you know a prototype, and people will come." But it's usually not that easy, you know. No, I mean I, I remember not that long ago, people were able to kickstart uh, games and get a phenomenal amount of funding. But now to get a really good Kickstarter campaign going, I've heard of people spending up upwards of forty k. Wow just to start a kickstarter so they're looking for funding to start a kickstarter <laughs> the funding for for funding yeah basically. that's right and then you've wow. got i guess this kind of rolls on neatly into uh, another nice steam innovation I, I say nice um with some reservation which of course is early access and early access has kind of worked i mean it, it plays on a lot of the points that you just went over federico in terms of that whole chicken and egg situation um some games have done quite well through early access, but there have been some notable failures. Let's not focus on the failures, but if you look at something like Nuclear Throne, yeah. it always gets me how you've got uh, a core team of two people and the amount of activity they were able to get around the development of Nuclear Throne was stunning. And they turned that not just into a critical success, but a commercial success as well. But that's, that, I would say, is probably the exception rather than the rule. What do you think? I think in early access, um, it, it the more general trend is uh, what some people call open development in the sense that 
uh, it's a very different type of making games. Like in the past, you used to, as a gamer, you used to have you know teasers of new games or magazines, and you know in the in the past few years, trailers and teasers of trailers on YouTube. Uh, but in this case, with early access and similar you know initiatives on other on other platforms, what you get is this like open approach so you can talk to the developers you can see the progress being made and you can play the game while it's being made and and i feel like uh, nuclear throne and uh, the vlambeer folks really nailed this aspect of uh you know talking to the community having forums on steam uh doing live streams a couple of times a week to show progress on the game. So it's not just that you're playing a game early, which is nice, you know, because it gives you that sense of I'm playing a secret game that, you know, the public cannot access. It's not just that. It's the sense that you're contributing uh, to building the game that I feel resonates with a lot of people. Do you think there's also a case of perhaps uh, too many cooks spoiled the pot? And that developers feel under a lot of pressure to take the game down a route that they might otherwise not have? Probably. I mean, it's it's tricky when it comes to... And this you can apply this to not just games, but the software development in general. When you do this kind of you know open beta, whatever you call it, uh, you need to balance your initial vision with uh, what people request, right? I mean, that's got to be difficult. Like when you give a when you give a piece of software in the hands of a lot of people, and everyone is asking you should do this and you should do that, uh, it's difficult and it takes courage to balance your initial idea or vision uh, with uh, you know the requests uh, and ideas of other people, which are the people that give you money, right? Uh, so I I don't know I never. I never found myself in this kind of situation. I guess it, it'll be interesting, Shahid, to see what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode of Remaster is brought to you by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. You can start building your own website today at squarespace.com and use the offer code insertcoin at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase with easy to use tools and templates squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you because if it's worth the effort it's worth sharing with the world with squarespace you can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level with no coding experience required with beautiful templates that feature responsive design and tons of awesome features and tools you'll be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want squarespace have state-of-the-art technology to power their websites and to power your site to ensure security and stability at all times and they're trusted by millions of people around the world because of it they have 24 7 support they have rock solid fast hosting they have their commerce platform to sell physical and digital goods and so much more squarespace plans start at just eight dollars a month and you'll get a free domain name if you sign up for a year you can sign up for a free trial today with no credit card required and start booting your own website straight away by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code insertcoin, that's all one word, I-N-S-E-R-T-C-O-I-N, to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Remaster. Thank you to Squarespace for their support of this show and Relay FM. Let's talk about for a little bit um, Steam as a 
developer platform then. So, Shahid, how do you feel about Steam as a developer? Wonderful. I think Steam Steam is absolutely fantastic. Um, Now that I'm independent, it's... um, I'm wondering if I should temper my language in any way. No, no, I'm not going to temper my language. Steam has got to be the number one game in town for an independent developer. Uh, I've spoken to a number of developers before I made the leap um, about markets, as you do. And I heard similar stories from a lot of people. Get it right, and Steam is three times your revenue of any other platform. Get it wrong, and of course it's absolutely nothing at all. And you'll have quite a few people with... I guess, vested interests, in other words, they're already doing really well and don't want too much competition, saying that things are not as good as they used to be. Well, right, things maybe aren't as good in terms of you're not going to get an easy ride. But if you have even the the smallest amount of um, faith in your abilities and you've done your research and um, you you've looked at the market and seen where the gaps are and and you worked on a plan, you've looked through how you're going to engage with your audience and so on, then you've really got to be looking very, very closely at Steam. And and let's be clear, when we say Steam, we mean primarily PC. Um, Mac and Linux still represent a tiny minority uh, of, of total Steam customer base. I think combined, no more than about 10, 15%, if that. So So really, you're looking at steam as uh, as an independent developer i say you're looking i'm looking at steam very very closely um i'm also looking at ios obviously looking at playstation as well um but but steam has got to be number one i just love the amount of flexibility over the years they've given to developers you know it's it's it comes right down to the way they run the company it's a highly unusual management structure at valve a very distributed um uh, I, I guess, hierarchy in that there's not really a hierarchy. There's Gabe and everyone else. Any hierarchy there is is purely meritocratic. There are no official labels. People can move between teams. And they're always throwing out new features that seem to be highly developer and customer-centric. None of them seem to be about just making Valve tons of money, you know? So stuff like Steam Workshop, which I think is so cool, you know, so there's a mechanism by which developers can monetize user-generated content. They don't just look at uh, a piece-by-piece approach and try and integrate stuff. They, they really try and work out what's an important set of functionalities and how can we deliver these in a nicely packaged way to the developer. And they've been leading the charge in that area for independent game developers for, I'd say, seven years now. So, so yeah... As an independent developer, you really still have got to be looking at Steam. It's just not easy anymore. But but hey, you know, it's a professional business. Um, if you want to get it right, you've got to conduct your business in a professional way. And if you do, I think Steam offers the best possible platform for success. So let's talk about some of the things that Steam are doing. Um, so we can look at some potential things for their 2016. Because I think, you know, what what we've established is we know, whether we all play them or not, we know that Steam is amazing for gamers, right? They are an, a great 
platform that allows for many people to easily sell their stuff. They're very developer positive, right? We know that. Uh, but they are mo- making some moves themselves that are quite interesting, and a lot of it is hardware-related now. Um, so they've been talking about the Steam boxes for a while. Um, they don't really seem like they're going anywhere. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't really seem that these specific Steam boxes are really having that much of an effect. Uh, they have the Steam controller as well, which again, uh, I know some people that like it, I know some people that don't like it, but I don't think this is going to make a massive impact to their business, either of those things. I think a lot of their core audience already have setups, uh, whether it will be you know a controller that they like or a control scheme that they like, and a machine to play their games on. I don't think that they're going to really make massive inroads here. But one of the things that is interesting is the HTC Vive which is a partnership between Steam and HTC, which is their VR play. So, I mean, I saw uh, something go by that I think they had, they had, had like 15,000 units sold when for the pre-orders. And so it seems like it could be a good platform for them. So, Shahid, a couple of questions for you. Why do you think that they partnered with HTC? And what do you think about Steam and Valve's uh, ability to get into this market in a big way when you have someone like Oculus uh, in the background as well? The interesting thing for me here is that the the focus for for Steam as uh, a subsidiary or working group of Valve has got to be the the Steam platform and the Steam store. And where do these other bits and pieces fit in? Are they a play for creating a brand new market or are they something else? I think there are a number of things. I think they need a reference device as far as Steam is concerned. And that's where the, the Steam boxes come in. And part of that, I think, was a hedge. You know, when Microsoft came out with Windows 8 originally and there were um, th- there was a lot of talk from Microsoft that they would make it very, very difficult for people to release software except through the Windows Store. And they backtracked on that significantly, and they had to. It was sensible that they did that. But at that time, you, you heard uh, Gabe Newell making pronouncements about Linux being a more and more important uh, target for them because it was the only completely open uh, place for them to play, which is interesting given that they're not completely open. You know, there's obviously <laughs> DRM involved yeah. with Steam, and and it goes against the whole philosophy of Richard Stallman and and his um, Free Software Foundation and so on. So so that was interesting. So I think they they did that as a hedge. You know, what's the worst case scenario, guys? Well, the worst case scenario is um, Steam will have to pay thirty percent of every sale to Microsoft having to go through the store. Now, that didn't happen, but, you know, they'd already committed to that, and it makes sense for them to do that. If you look at Microsoft nowadays, for example, Microsoft are now uh, creating really excellent reference devices. Um, You look at Google. Google are creating excellent reference devices. They're all learning a thing or two from Apple. The reason Apple is such an excellent experience is because they control everything top to bottom. And of course, people like uh, Google, people like Valve didn't really have that. 
So they have partnerships instead, and Google have partnerships with various handset manufacturers mm-hmm. to create a reference version of Android. And um, it, it's exactly the same situation when it comes to Steam and creating the, the Vive uh, VR system. They need a reference standard. So you think that really they're just making sure that their platform has something, right? Like that their platform has the ability to have a virtual reality games and virtual reality experience. And the best way for them to do this was to go out and get it made themselves with somebody's help. Absolutely. You need a, you need a route to market. You can't have your route to market completely controlled by other players. And in many cases, this is defensive. Um, but I think in the case of VR, it's also exploratory. I don't think it's an accident, for example, that... Uh, the the Vive experience right now is probably the the signature VR experience. You know, everyone talks about VR being an experience. Well, you know, the, when you go to shows, the experience everybody talks about is Vive. Yes, there are other more convenient experiences. Yes, there are other less expensive experiences. But if you're defining it purely in terms of an experience, it's very valuable for Steam to be able to say, well, if you want the absolute best, you're going to have to come to us. So people were saying that it's better than the Oculus. Uh-huh. Why is that? Because you've got f- complete freedom of movement. Right. Hmm. You know, it's, it's quite a complex setup, the Vive setup. But once you've got it set up, it's really potent. I mean, I tried one out and uh, I, I was blown away. Metaphorically, of course, uh, I, I was being uh, shot at and eaten, um, but it felt pretty close to the real thing. <laughs> yeah, see, I've only tried an Oculus. Um, I haven't tried the Vive. So I've tried none of them. <laughs> I mean, so. I'm interested to see, though, if it can make a bigger dent, because Oculus is the poster child, right? Like that, that is VR, I guess. I think that's fair to say. I'm not sure how much of a commercial um, venture Vive is. I think it's much more about, you you know, like when you're Mercedes, you want a flagship car, right? Mm -hmm. You need a flagship product because it's what people identify with. And it has a halo effect on the rest of the brand. People don't buy the AMG CL 5000 gig or whatever. Um, they, They buy... Uh, a lower-end model, a C-class or, e- or an E-class or whatever. And it's exactly the same thing. People will play Steam games. There'll be a, a halo effect on the rest of the brand. And who knows where it might go in the future. It might be that um, in partnership with HTC, they create more affordable versions. But for now, they understand that this is still very much an exploratory thing, but they want to make sure that in this phase, they define the experience at the highest possible level. That's enormously valuable. They've all, I, mean, I think it's very neat the way all of the different players in VR have segmented their position. You know, you've got, uh, obviously you've got Oculus Rift being the one that everybody's talking about, but they've been sensible in partnering with Samsung to create gear to have that entry-level experience as well. It's nowhere near as good, you know, it's, um, but it's, it's okay. You get the experience that way. It's accessible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's untethered, and people love untethered. You know, once you go wireless, it's so hard to go back. Uh, but it's nowhere near as good as experience as, as uh, Oculus Rift. And then you've got PlayStation, which presumably is going to be 
um, the Trojan horse effect, but also the easiest to use in many ways. So you've already got the hardware installed in 35, almost 40 million homes. And here's this extra headset that you just plug in and go. So there's the accessibilities of use play. But then you've got, well, you know, what's what's the Halo brand here? What's what's the one that, that everybody is talking about? I, mean, I was listening to a, another Tim Ferriss podcast, keep banging on about him. But the one thing he talked about in his last podcast was Vive. He didn't talk about the, and I'm sure he's tried all the other VR stuff. All of these people in San Francisco with VC of talking about VR because they don't want to be left out, right? But the one that he was talking about on the show was Vive. Now imagine the value that brings to Steam. I, I, I feel like I missed this. You know, like the idea that people were saying that the, the Vive is superior. I, I, I don't know why, but I just feel like this hasn't been something that's crossed, that's crossed my purview. And maybe because, you know, HTC, we don't normally pay attention, I guess. Not these days, I, anyway. I remember the hardware not looking great. Maybe that's changed. I just remember it wasn't as sleek as uh, the Oculus or the PlayStation it VR. Is a, it has some weird... I mean, it, it looks like weird. a bunch of holes in the visor. <laughs> I think they're, they're, they're like infrared dots or Sensors, something, right? Yeah, they're for okay. positioning. Yeah, it's getting better. It's getting better. All right, so let's let's wrap this up then, because uh, we there's a game we want to talk about today. <laughs> Should we talk about the future? Yeah, Shahid, t- tell us what you think about what the 2016 and beyond is going to look like for Steam. Where do you think they're going? They recognise that as a result of having thousands and thousands of games and having the most popular distribution platform for video games out there bar iOS, um, certainly the most games-focused one anyway, they recognize that they've hit upon this problem where developers feel like they are not getting the visibility that they need, that it's very, very hard to penetrate uh, some of that banner space and get some attention for their games. Difficult problem to solve. Well, there are a number of ways they can solve that. And and I think they're going to do all of these things. The, The first is creating better tools um, and better services for developers to to get more engagement, and that can happen through not just their um, uh, their their queue. Uh, you know, they have a discovery queue, uh, which has been quite successful over the last year. That can be improved, but also through other game curators. And that's another thing that they've been really pushing hard, which I think works quite well. So you're exposed to different types of games because of the curators you follow. They're going to be in more countries. They're going to take more currency. So that obviously expands your market significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I heard an interesting thing from a developer where they were working on a game. And because of the availability of Workshop, Workshop allowed one of their customers to create a localization, which they were then able to sell. So win-win, you know, the developer doesn't have to localize. Somebody else is interested, has created a localization file for this game, and the localizer and the developer get a cut of that through through workshop which is wonderful no other um system as far as i'm aware no other platform has that functionality so so that allows the reach of games to go broader i think they're going to work very hard on discoverability for games um outside their core 500 there's going to be a lot more uh, ai uh in in curation there's going to be a lot more interesting cycling uh, there's going to be a lot more 
uh, AB. Um, so, you know, there, there'll be market divisions and subdivisions, not just on a regional basis, but on a time slice basis. I think all of these things are going to help to um, improve the feed of new content to the massive marketplace that they've got. So I think those are the areas they're going to concentrate on. And I still think we're going to have even more games next year than we do this year. I don't think there is an indie apocalypse at all. I think people are just going to up their game. So the other interesting thing, I guess, is you're going to see the arrival of uh, one of my favorite games at some point. We haven't talked about it much, but that's going to be on Steam at some point as well, I would imagine. And you'll see more and more amazing games coming to Steam as well. So, Look at you dropping little hints uh, there. What, what, I, I won't say I anything say? more than that. I think. Let's talk about another game, shall we? Today's show is also brought to you by Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. If you've ever looked at your internet and thought that it was a horrible affront to your eyes, those days are now over. With Igloo, you'll be able to make a corporate internet look and feel like a place that you and your co-workers will want to be in. It's super configurable. You can completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your team. And you can also give it the functionality that you need to. They have group spaces and role-based access permissions and an easy drag and drop widget editor. When you combine these, you'll be able to reorganize the whole platform to fit exactly how each of the teams work within your company. You can manage your task list from your laptop during a meeting, share status updates from your phone as you're leaving a client site and even access the latest version of a file from home because Igloo is fully responsive, it's fully mobile. You're mobile these days, your work should be mobile with you. Because of that, because of our mobile lives, people tend to bring in outside apps into companies and sometimes sensitive documents and data are getting scattered amongst them all. This is why Igloo allows you to integrate services like Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox into their big, easy-to-secure platform. And their platform features 256-bit encryption, single sign-on, and Active Directory integrations too. You'll be able to track who has read documents within Igloo's document preview and collaboration engine with red receipts. So if you share documents within that system, you'll be able to see who has looked at them and make sure that everybody is on the same page. It's time to break away from the internet you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you'll be able to try it out for free with any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. Go sign up at igloosoftware.com slash remaster. Thank you so much to Igloo for their support of this show and Relay FM. We're going to talk about maybe one of our first, like one of the first games I think that we spoke about on this show in detail. Uh, would mm-hmm. you like to tell people what Firewatch is? And also, please bear in mind, uh, once Federico has explained Firewatch uh, in a very kind of uh, high level, we will be playing a sound, the spoiler horn sound, because we will then be going deep into spoiler territory about Firewatch. Well, the, the game comes from Camposanto, uh, a team of developers uh, with a bunch of great names from the industry. Uh, they're also backed by Panic, which is a software house, uh, mostly known so far for excellent uh, iOS and Mac software. And the game is a first-person adventure type of game set in the uh, Wyoming wilderness. Uh, you play as Henry, uh, who is, uh, signs up at least to be a Firewatch for the summer to uh, guard this immense forest in Wyoming. And 
the, the game itself is a very based on a very simple mechanic. You play in first person. You walk around. You're given you're given very basic uh, tools for survival, including a map, a compass. And just you know your arms, really. Um, you need to walk around. You need to you need to climb uh, using ropes. You need to explore. You need to uncover secrets. And the the key mechanic of the game is communication. Communication through uh, a walkie-talkie type of radio that you have. And you communicate with this other person named Delilah, who is uh, another, uh, she's another firewatch in another uh, tower nearby. Uh, and th- the game itself is very heavily based on dialogue. Uh, dialogue is the key component of Firewatch. You do a lot of talking, you do a lot of listening, and... Unlike other adventure games, your hero actually talks. You know, this can be, you know, especially if you come from a Nintendo background where characters don't usually talk. Um, Harry is voiced by, I don't remember the name, he's the same guy who played Harry Crane on Mad Men, you know. Uh, Excellent, excellent choice. Uh, Fantastic acting, both by Henry and Delilah. And you do a lot of talking, you do a lot of listening, and you can choose different options in the dialogue. Uh, I played on PlayStation 4 and I really like the interface for choosing, uh, you know, uh, for accessing and choosing options in dialogue. You use the shoulder buttons on the DualShock to navigate options and, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's it's really well done. Uh, it It's not a revolutionary game in the sense that it's beautiful, absolutely gorgeous to look at. Um, the, the, the colors... The lightning, the scene—it's a—it's a very atmospheric type of game, uh, but but it's not revolutionary in the sense that it doesn't bring any you know super original mechanic. Uh, there's no motion controls. It's really just you walk around in first person, you explore, and you you follow the story. And the the story—it's it, really what Firewatch is based upon. It's a it's a game about a story. It's a game about two people. I would say, uh, but it's really a game about your choice, what you do when you're faced with a lot of decisions, but really what you do when you're faced in life with a with with a big question. Um, at least that was you know the big question for me. Uh, you know what you're gonna do um, when when you love someone and that someone is sleeping away, uh, and that for me was the big question behind Firewatch. And I feel like, Mike, you need to play the spoiler horn. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting close there. All right, let, let's start with the start. Um, so the game begins with you making decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So you're given those questions and you kind of create the backstory. Yes for your character. Now, how did you feel about that as a way to begin the game? It really threw me off because I wasn't expecting that kind of intro. So we knew quite a bit about Firewatch before the actual game. We knew about Harry, we knew about, you know, the job, we knew about the Wyoming forest. Uh, We didn't know the background. We didn't know why is Henry exactly there. And I wasn't expecting to have that kind of storytelling as an intro. So it's basically... A black background, um, you know, text telling you what's going on in the life of Harry, who you are, yep. uh, what you do. And it tells you about 
your first meeting with your future wife. What's her name? Um, oh, I don't Julia. Her name. Julia. And at this point, you basically already make decisions. So you decide how to approach her. Uh, and eventually, when you first go out, you get married. Uh, you decide what type of dog you want to get. So, of course, I got a beagle, you know. Naturally. Naturally. It's best dog. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you make you already make a lot of decisions. You, you know, and, and, and I feel like the game already set me... Despite the the lack of you know 3D graphics or you know full motion video that kind of effects it's just really text, but it it, it got me in a in a in a, in a mood I guess in a, it was telling me a story only through text, I and I and I think in a way that very few other games have done so well so far for me, uh, and it's really great writing I would say. Um, you already make decisions at this point in, in the intro, and the game takes a <laughs> takes a or the story uh, takes a very odd and unex- at least for me unexpected turn when Julia, your wife, is diagnosed with early sign of dementia, and it gets real heavy real quick. It gets right? real heavy real quick, like five minutes into reading the story about the the intro. If this wasn't what I was expecting. No. Like, I don't know what how I was expecting this game to unfold, like what I was expecting the story to be. Uh, but it wasn't, in my mind, based on sadness. You, you know, I was reading the intro, and I, and I started getting the feeling that, you know when you're watching a movie and you're like, this is too nice, it's going to go ugly eventually, it's going to yeah. go, something's going to go wrong. A few minutes before the, you know, the the twist, I was getting that feeling, but I, 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 I was thinking to myself, "Oh God, please, not let it be about cancer." You know, I, I was getting oh, that God. kind of, yeah, yeah. I was getting that. I was reading the dialogue. I was pressing the buttons, and I was yeah. like, "Please don't let it be cancer. Please don't let it be cancer." And when it was dementia, I was like, "Huh." You know, it was a very still ad- sad, but still sad, but very different. Most yeah. types of games, they they, you know, you're facing a disease or you know somebody dies, but it's not that type of struggle. It's not that type of challenge. Well, dementia is the the per- okay. We're talking in very broad terms here, not about what's actually happening, but in in regards to its relation to the game, dementia is the perfect issue to be facing. Because your later romantic choices follow a heavier weight because yeah, this yeah. person is alive. Yes. They just don't remember you. Yeah. Right? Like that that I think that's what makes everything harder later. Like if Julia was dead, right, then everything else doesn't feel as bad. But your later choices, the choices that you make in regard in relation to your like romantic feelings about Delilah, it puts a different spin on it when she is then also talking about uh about how you're gonna feel about going to see Julia again and stuff like that. Like it makes it heavier and harder. It was a very clever decision. I wonder if that was always the original idea or if like as the game was going along, they're like, Oh, if we actually make this dementia it makes everything else harder, right? And 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 it's an especially mature 
theme, you know, uh, to have that kind of that kind of challenge uh, at a at a personal level. Uh, usually, movies, games use death and loss as a as a story device, you know, to to show you sadness and you know uh, to 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 eventually come to terms with it and to move on. And we see this all the time in TV shows, movies, games, books. Uh, but to have this kind of real, like, it felt immediately real to me. Like, this is a family, and his wife is going through this kind of problem. And later in the game, you, Elisa, I was always struggling to imagine, like, what it would be like to have that kind of problem. To have a person who's still alive, to have a partner who's still alive, but doesn't remember you. And in a sense, you know, the person you used to know is no more, is dead, but it, she's not dead, she's still alive. And it's so, like, and I feel like, especially if you're a certain age, you know, if you're past your teens and you're, you know, accustomed to the problems of life and, you know, the, you know just the everyday struggle of existing, <laughs> um, it, it gets real dark, but not in the common sense, not in the sense that your partner died or, you know, you're, you're a bad person because you killed your partner, you know, in an accident. You know, it's not that type of cliche. It's very different. All right, quick um, straw poll, all right? Uh, Shahid, did you advance the romantic relationship with Delilah? Nope. Federica? I did. So did I. <laughs> I just wanted to see what what would happen. You know, I, it wasn't like that for me. Like I, I felt like there was a. Con- I felt that there was a connection between yeah, Harry no, no. and Delilah, and and I wanted to explore that connection. Um. So that was why I went that route, and I felt bad about it as well. Right. Like it wow. felt like a. This maybe isn't something that I should be doing, but it feels like the right thing for this person right now. That's how I felt about it. So, Shahid, why did you not do it? I never quite trusted Delilah. Okay. I always had this sense through the whole game that this is not just me out um, in the the Wyoming uh, forests, National Park, um, having a stroll. I always felt like I was being led down a certain story. I never got the sense that I really had true agency. And I'm highly resistant as a player. You have to understand, this is one of the first games I finished in a long time. I don't finish many games. So I'm highly resistant to um, having my my agency revoked (laughs) in any way in a video game. (laughs) And so I felt that constant tension in the game. And I thought, okay... Something's going to happen at some point. And if I've entertained where I think the game is trying to lead me to, maybe I won't be in the best position at that time to react or respond. And then by the time I did get the opportunity to advance that relationship, it was too late because I hadn't done the groundwork. And it was kind of poignant at the end, you know? Okay, so this is interesting then, because we've obviously taken this in different routes. What do you feel like then happened at the end for you? Do you like explain what, what happened and why you think that you didn't lay the groundwork and why that affected the situation? 
I think what happened was I I was presented with many opportunities to advance an interesting course of dialogue and I chose the safe options. Yeah. And I did that because as I said I wanted to be prepared for the twist. I was expecting yeah. a twist at some point. So you were being like defensive in case you yeah. turned out to be the big bad. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And at the end I kind of felt wistful and ah uh, you know, she was all right, you know. Um, not not 100% all there, but who yeah. is, you know. Yeah. Um, Henry certainly wasn't. Uh, me as a human being acting out this player's actions certainly isn't uh, perfect. We're all highly imperfect. But I thought, ah, oh, you know, should, maybe I should have been a bit more trusting. So I felt kind of bad that I'd been so distrustful. So what I'm trying to get is like, I'm trying to see how your game ended and why you felt the way that you did. So what happened at the end for you? So at the end, um, I went to Delilah's watchtower. Yep. Put on the cans, had a conversation with her. Um, I, uh, I tried to get her to come back to Boulder with me, I think. Yep. Uh, and she said, nah, because it's, let's face it, it's completely out of the blue. The whole game, I'd been fairly cold and, a little bit suspicious and right at the end it's like come back to Boulder with me and she's like nah you should go to julia you know um and then i get on the chopper and that's it right so that's what i figured happened and the interesting thing is even if you advance a romantic relationship she still tells you to do that yeah exactly i feel good now (laughs) so this yeah because that was the oh it was like a gut punch for me yes yes because like come back to reality stupid you know yeah yeah that's she's kind of the way that I kind of saw this was like, this was summer loving. Yeah, exactly. Right? So true, yes. It gets to the end and she's like, you know, reading between the lines of it, this was just here. Yeah. This doesn't exist outside of here. You need to go and do the right thing. And basically, I, I think it's a little bit warmer. Basically, she she in a nutshell says, go to Julia see how that is, and then maybe we'll talk afterwards. So there is maybe a little bit of hope there, but I came away from it feeling like, oh, I made the wrong decision. That uh, I basically came away from the game feeling like I'd done the wrong thing for my character, like that he should have been focused on Julia and, and not got caught up with Delilah, which... Which is why I actually consider Firewatch to be one of the better gaming experiences that I have had in a while, because it made me feel things video games don't usually make me feel. I felt like I had done the wrong thing. I felt like I had done a bad thing. I felt like my kind of morality was questioned, Mm -hmm. um, and video games don't usually do that for me. Video games are supposed to make you feel good about yeah. you, about your actions. Yeah. I felt like a jerk. Honestly. There was no happy ending. <laughs> no, it was like a slap in the face. Yeah, and I spent the whole time, you know, flirting with this person, you know, exchanging jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Boy, I, do I feel smug right now! <laughs> hold on, hold on. I left my ring on the desk. Um, Oh, you know, I didn't do that. I did that. I was like, okay, let's do this, you know? You moved on. Uh, yeah, 
It's not what I would normally do in real yeah, life. I, I don't yeah. want to have a conversation here about what is actually right and wrong. No. Because no. I don't think it's clear cut about what is right and wrong for that person in that scenario. It um, never is. Exactly. Because there is no right and wrong. There are just decisions that you would make. And then there are things that happen. But I just think it's really interesting to know that it doesn't really matter what you do. There is no way to win Firewatch. You no. do not win this game. And, and I think that's what's so fantastic about it. And I really like that it was about four hours. Yeah, it was uh, very comfortable for me to play. Uh, I got it through, you know, like three nights in a row. Mm -hmm. uh, and the difference between Firewatch and most games... Uh, the the big theme, at least for me, that in most games you teach the game and the game creators a lesson by beating the game. Firewatch teaches you a lesson by making you come back to life, at least for me, and telling you what are you doing. Uh, you know, this is just an escape. At least for me, the the sense, the the the, the big idea that I got from Firewatch is. It's a story about escapism, you know? It's a story about mm -hmm. not wanting to face the problems of life, trying to get a, to go away, but eventually they come back to you, either because you think about them or because someone else forces you to think about it and to come back to reality, to go back to your real life. And you could, you know, in a, in a metaphorical sense, uh, Firewatch is a game about games you know is a game about escaping reality and later having to go back to it because it's all you got uh, and it's also a game about at least the reason that, that i try to justify my actions and Henry's actions by you know through my commands is it's a it's a story about craving human contact it's a story about wanting to man it's a story about loneliness it's a story about loneliness yeah. and wanting to feel close to someone again yeah. in the game you never see another human face up close you see two teens uh skinny dipping in the lake the creepy you guy on the hill the creepy the creepy guy on the hill but the it's crap out of me oh yeah you get punched <laughs> you get punched and i literally jumped Me too. on my chair <laughs> you get punched but you fall on the ground you never see the attacker so it's a game about feeling lonely and just wanting to be close to someone because the someone that you used to love is in many ways a shell of the person you remember so it's a very it's it's a heavy game it's yep. a heavy story but it's a beautiful real touching story one of the things that I really liked about this game, and is a credit to Campo Sento, is they were able to creep me out without scaring me. Because when a game scares me, I don't play it anymore. Like, yeah. I stopped playing Fallout because I kept hearing noises in the house when I was playing that game. <laughs> right? Yes. I can't play it. It creeps me out too much because things just seem to just happen in that game. Yeah. And they're like, things just start running at you and, and it could happen at any point. And I don't like it. And I don't like to feel that way when I play games. But this creeped me out enough, but not so much that it turned me off. And I think they, that that is a real fine line to cross, especially for someone like me who is, is a little bit sensitive to that. Um, I think that they did a very good job in, in not making it too scary. Yeah, it was escapist without being fantastical. Yeah. 
Yeah, they didn't. It never felt like there was anything supernatural going on, right. which is one right. of the things that that freaks me out the most. If it's humans, it's it's less uh, it's less scary. Let's talk for a few minutes about. So I've seen some people criticize the plot, um, and that there are maybe some holes in the plot, and I wonder what you guys think. No, <laughs> who is in control of that tent and that watchtower, like the big? radio tower like who is that because the game seems to try and wrap it up and be like oh we were just being listened to and recorded by uh the father right the 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 guy of the kid who you find he's home so who were the people in the in the tent was it him or was it somebody else i saw (laughs) i saw on reddit someone uh theorized that it was all him uh just uh at least i mean the equipment was there and it could have been anything you know it could have been a, like a university study or whatever a research yeah. team but the setup with the notes and the, the bed sheets you know the sign of human life was all him trying to to creep you out and to you know to to tell you uh there's people listening to you that's what i mean that's that my theory it was that he just took control of some equipment that was already existing yeah in that area someone even suggested that what this is super creepy that while you're in the tent uh the other the guy is actually under the sheets <laughs> just uh, watching you silently huh. uh <laughs> i i don't know because like there was one line in the in the dialogue uh, when he said, you got real close to me, you know, the guy at the end, uh, the person was like, what if it actually is under the bed? <laughs> well, somebody was there to burn it down. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it was him. Yeah. Super creepy. I just haven't read much of the Reddit stuff, so I wanted to get a theory about that, which made sense to me. That one makes sense to me. I feel, I feel like uh, the lack of a conspiracy theory actually makes it all, all more sad. You know, it's just people after all. And each one of them is trying to get on with their lives in a different way. There's you, there's Delilah coming to this, you know, firewatch job every summer to get away, probably from a boring life, mm-hmm. uh, from a boyfriend she doesn't love, maybe. Uh, there's the other, the, the guy, I don't remember his name. Uh, his son is dead and he doesn't want to go back to the real world uh, to uh, for for a couple of reasons, maybe to not be questioned by the police or to face the fact that he's alone. Uh, so he, he decided to just live in the forest and to creep you out all the time. And it's really sad, right? There's no big, you know, secret government spying on you. There's no NSA planning towers in Wyoming to listen to your radio talk. It's just people trying to not be lonely, but in fact they are. And so, it's it's arguable that that dad, um, terrible, I can't remember his name, uh, was doing all of that because he was lonely too, right? Yeah. He he was just he was recording all of that stuff because he actually got to hear people talk again. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it was a great game, man. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> I just love. I want. I I want to. I, I want to have more games in the Firewatch universe, but I also know I don't want to have more Firewatch. This is a perfect gem, and it's perfect as it is, you know? Yeah, I don't want um, Firewatch 2, Harry Goes to Boulder, you know? Like- <laughs> <laughs> you're lost, you're lost in, the, in the Colorado traffic, and you need to find, <laughs> find Delilah. <laughs> I was really excited about this game. I was really looking forward to this game. Uh, 
what I was looking forward to was not what this game was. You know, like what what I was looking forward to, what I was excited about was was not what this game turned out to be. You know, I was expecting it to be like a detective story or something, right? Because that was kind of how it was pitched. It's like something's going on, right? That was kind of like the the overwhelming idea of what this game was about. Something's going on. And you need to find out what it is. It's a lot more human than that, wasn't it? Exactly. It was it. What the game actually ended up being was an exploration into humanity, which is not what I ever expect from a video game. And I was so happy that it ended up being this thing that ended up making me think um, and feel something, even though what it made me feel was a little bit uncomfortable. 